Welcome to the War Room. Ryan Ray here reminding you that this show is listener supported at warroommedia.com. You can sign up for the free option, but if you want to support the show, that is where you do it. And oh, by the way, we will be rolling out YouTube episodes, so be sure to be on the lookout for that. Again, warroommedia.com is where you stay up to date with everything, communicate with me, see all of the past episodes, warroommedia.com. Now, let's get to the show. Aaron, welcome to the War Room. Thank you. Okay, as I mentioned in the book, you have a, uh, in the introduction, you have a book coming out, or that's come out, I can't speak today, called Getting China Wrong. We've had Noam Chomsky, uh, General Spalding, uh, and several other guests that haven't come out, and we're recording this, that will be out by the time this comes out, though, talking about China. It's a very, um, very large place geographically, but there's a large array of opinions on China. And so you're, when you're saying getting China wrong, who specifically are you addressing by that comment? I think uh, our policymaking elites over the last 30 years in, in government, uh, in business, in the academic world, uh, it's not everybody, but it's a lot of people. Is that because of Western ideals trying to be imposed upon uh, Chinese uh, practices and principles is because we can't speak the language combination more, more than that. What, what, why do we get it wrong? I think it's a couple of things. One, it was the expectation, not so much the desire to uh, foist our ways on other people, but the expectation that other people, when given the opportunity would converge and agree with us ultimately about the best way to organize their societies, their political system, their economy. Um, and the belief that by engaging with them, particularly economically, we could, you know, promote and encourage those those tendencies. So it wasn't so much a, a result of ignorance of Chinese society, maybe an, a misunderstanding of the character of the Chinese Communist Party and the system that governs China today. That's really the root uh, of the problem. And it's what I mean when I say people got China wrong. They didn't understand uh, the perspective and the preferences and the policies of the Chinese Communist Party. So the hard part I have trying to understand this, what we're calling, I guess, the modern Chinese area or era, what, what I'm calling it at least is, but me post Mao, um, is we kind of have right now, which is what's going on today, which is more of a restricting, tightening type period we're in. And it seems that that's going to be around for some time. Um, let's, maybe you disagree, please tell me if you do. But if you go back 10 to 20 years, there was at least a somewhat opening. Maybe it was a false opening, but somewhat of an opening. And so my question always is, how do we evaluate that period of history? Because some people would say perhaps the Chinese were, we were playing into their hands, just to use a term. And so we were doing stuff that we thought was right. And and so you know they kind of uh, falsely open up, if you will, and it doesn't turn out like we thought is part of what you're saying. Um, but I do wonder if on the Chinese side, if they didn't realize um, perhaps how rapidly people would come into uh, what, what I'm calling a middle class, if you will, relative for their economy, um, the um, amount of billionaires they might have and how that might put pressure on the CCP. So how do you evaluate what we've seen from China over this period? I think the, uh, you know, let's start with what the expectations were in the United States and in other Western advanced industrial democracies. And here we're talking primarily about the period since the end of the Cold War. That's the focus of, of my book. 
Um, and I think the, the expectation was that by engaging with China, we would encourage it to sort of become a member in good standing of the international system that we had built. Uh, we would promote forces that would tend to lead to economic liberalization, so more and more reliance on the market, and eventually the transformation of their economic system into something that more closely resembled ours. And in the long run, political liberalization, you know, tendency towards something more open, something more democratic, not necessarily just like our institutions, but very different from a CCP, you know, Leninist dictatorship. That was our expectation. That was the goal of our policy. My view is that the CCP leadership understood all of that and was determined to prevent that, to take advantage of the opportunities offered by engagement to expand their economy, to get access to technology, capital markets, and so on, while at the same time uh, controlling and limiting what they saw as the dangerous tendencies that engagement might set loose. Uh, Deng Xiaoping, so the leader of China after Mao, uh, famously said that, you know, when you open the windows, you let in fresh air, but you also let in flies. And so opening the windows was opening China society and economy to the, to the West. The flies were the potentially dangerous ideas of the liberal democratic world that might get into the heads of Chinese people and weaken the Chinese Communist Party's grip on political power. And they were determined not to allow that to happen. Now, as you mentioned, there have been periods over the last 20 or 30 years where it seemed like there was some loosening, greater reliance on markets, perhaps somewhat uh, greater freedom for people to express their their views within, within limits. Um, my view of all this is the CCP was um, determined to maintain political control but it was very experimental uh, about the policies that it pursued. And it was willing to try different things, but there were always guardrails. There were always limits to how far it would go. Yes, they would use the market more because it's more efficient, but they wouldn't allow market forces to run wild as they saw it uh, and create uh, centers of power that could eventually challenge or overturn the, the communist party. They might allow um, more uh, expression on a variety of issues, including some uh, questions of policy, you know, whether there should be better health care for the aged and so on. Not criticism of the regime as such, but they were never going to have multi-party democracy, free press and so on. So what happened was I think people in the West, people in the United States looked at these things and said, aha, it's working. We have this strategy. We have these goals. There seems to be evidence that things are going our way and misinterpreted that. Uh, and so have been slow to recognize that it wasn't going that way and it's slow to acknowledge that, in fact, uh, the, the trends were in the opposite direction. And they have been certainly under Xi Jinping, but I think even before he came to power, there's kind of a reigning in of the market and definitely a reigning in of the population. Okay, so let's separate uh, business from government for just a second. Because when I look at the complaints that the larger companies will levy against uh, China today, I, I have a hard time being sympathetic to them. Um, they were aware um, of what's been going on in China for some time. 
They were aware of how the business deals were structured and how the power was held top down. So it's not as if you wake up in 2022 and you go, oh my gosh, the CCP's got all this power and they're not playing by the rules. Actually, what seems to have happened is that the business, and I'm not necessarily critical of this mentality, but just factually, it seems that these big, large companies went to China, understood that the rules were in their favor to get the cheap labor, to get things done because the party was behind them. So if the party were to shift and not be behind you, then you no longer have these benefits. Um, I have a hard time sympathizing with the businesses who whine about the the problems in China today because they, the, on some, on some level, the rules might have expanded or tightened, but generally it's always been the same group that's been pulling the thread. So let's talk about government in a second, but from the business standpoint, do you find their arguments to be compelling or are you lack sympathy like I do? I guess overall, and of course, it's a big world. We're talking about many different companies, but overall, I lack sympathy like you do because I think for a long time, uh, and it's different in different industries, different sectors, but uh, the companies and sectors that so strongly favored economic engagement starting in the 90s and into the 2000s uh, did so for you know one of several reasons. One, some of them thought they're going to have this giant market. There are all these... Chinese consumers and they're becoming wealthier and we can sell more soybeans or we can sell cars or jet aircraft uh, on the one hand. And on the other, um, pretty quickly, people realized this is a country with a massive supply of relatively cheap labor, reasonably well-educated, that can work in factories that either we own or we're partnering with Chinese companies and produce goods or parts that go into goods that we can sell at a lower price than we would otherwise be able to do. Uh, and that will enable us to earn big profits. And then there's, of course, the financial sector. We're going to make money by uh, investing uh, or by helping other people invest in China. So there was, you know, there was lots of money to be made. Um, I think there was a lack of foresight in, in some cases, a belief that, you know, this would persist forever. Uh, and a misunderstanding of what, from the perspective of China's leaders, what was desirable. So they didn't want to stay at the kind of low-end manufacturing and making less sophisticated goods forever, partly because when you do that, you only make a fraction of the of what the thing sells for. So they do the final assembly of the iPhone, they get some tiny percentage of the profit from the iPhone. Apple gets most of it for designing it. Uh, so they didn't want to stay there forever. They were always going to try to advance technologically uh, and move up that ladder and eventually get to a point where they had companies that could compete with Western companies and press them out of the Chinese market and compete with them for market share in the rest of the world. Uh, and that's what has started to happen you know, since the turn of the century and it's accelerating. Mm -hmm. uh, and so now it doesn't, it doesn't look so great. Uh, companies are uh, losing access to the Chinese market where they realize uh, they've helped to cultivate competitors who are now trying to put them out of business and they're unhappy about it, but uh, it's a little late. Um, another thing that was going on th throughout was that uh, Chinese companies in collaboration with the Chinese government 
despite commitments that they made, for example, in joining the World Trade Organization at the turn of the century, weren't living up to those commitments. And in particular, they were doing things that gave them an unfair advantage over foreign competitors. So they were subsidizing their industries, which you know they're not supposed to do under the terms of the WTO, but they found ways of doing it. Um, and they were stealing intellectual property uh, through a, a variety of mechanisms, including you know cyber penetration of the computers of Western companies and, and governments, um, uh, compelling Western companies to turn over key technology if they wanted to have access to the Chinese market. Um, and, you know, Western companies were aware of that, uh, but for a long time, they didn't really want to complain about it because they're afraid of being punished for that by the Chinese government. And they were very confident that, well, okay, uh, these Chinese companies are stealing our IP, uh, but we're continuing to innovate and move up the, the, the ladder so that we're always going to be at the top. And it's no longer clear that that's going to be the case. So practices that the Chinese have been following for a long time that we didn't really object to, which we should have more, uh, now people are getting exercised about them. But again, it's a little bit late in the day. Okay, you hit on so much there. Um, so one thing, um, just on the, on, on the market size, I was in China in 2019, and we were touring a facility of this filter company that put filters in chemical plants or something. And their argument uh, was that they can go there, they can do a JV, and then the Chinese will allow them to put the filter into the market, even though it might not be 100% ready. And so they can put it out into the wild and see how it's really going to react in these real life scenarios. And they're going to sell it, of course, and then they can come to the US or wherever and have met the EPA standards because they put it out into the marketplace already and kind of fast track it and improve their technology. And so it's hard to look at a company and go, that's, that's pretty shrewd because you're making money on your R&D. And when you come to a bigger, uh, a, di- a different market, potentially bigger market in the U.S., whatever it might be, um, you've cut out some of that, that process time that you had to go through. So it's hard to look at them and go, oh, wow, that, that would be stupid not to, to do that. But also understanding how the rules are set up at any moment those permits could be revoked and they could be shut down and the JV could. And so it's also like, well, you can't complain though if you get burned on this. And, and so for me, that's kind of the, you can see the attraction and I'm, I understand it, but, but there's a real sense in which it could go badly. And when it goes badly, I just want you to complain because you're going to make a gazillion dollars more power to you. But if it goes badly, it's not, it shouldn't be a surprise that this was on the table of an option. And I have no idea what happened to the company, but it's just an example. Well, take that as an example. And I don't know the company, but there are a, a thousand stories like this. A Western company enters into a joint venture with a Chinese counterpart because it has to, it's required to, uh, and it's either uh, compelled to transfer the technology or because the Chinese counterpart gets to study the product and the process by which it's produced, lo and behold, a Chinese company pops up that is manufacturing virtually the same thing at a fraction of the cost. And very quickly pushes the Western competitor out of the Chinese market and even worse, starts selling the same things uh, in the home markets of those companies. So yeah, it's good. It's good while it lasts, but we've seen this pattern repeated over and over again. And it's, 
it's been evident for some time that this was going on. And you could say, well, all right, uh, these companies are in the best position to calculate what's in their interest. Uh, but that hasn't, uh, I mean, there are a number of problems with that, uh, but it hasn't always been the case that they've been good stewards of their of their companies. And sometimes they've mismanaged them and they've allowed the Chinese by not playing by the rules to get an advantage that's forced their Western competitors out of business. Happened, okay. It's happened repeatedly. I, I met a guy in London uh, a couple of years ago who ran a company that made magnets uh, and simple ones, but also very sophisticated ones. And he said he had gotten out of China and I asked him why. He said, I, I had a, a company there or branch of my company that was manufacturing these magnets. And I realized that a, a company had opened up literally across the street that was manufacturing the same thing as I was in exactly the same ways and selling it at a fraction of the cost because they were stealing the, the intellectual property. So that story is repeated many, many times. Okay. And so let's, let's talk about the decisions that they've made. What I can't get my read on, you know, this is what you might have some insight on is how much of this was because perhaps in the nineties, early two thousands, people weren't as aware of the business practices that were actually on the ground, how it was going. Um, I mean, I can just tell you in my lifetime, the perception of China has changed pretty dramatically. Um, you know, some good, some bad. Um, but I, I don't know if the average American would realize that Disney doesn't own Disney in China. Like it's, it's, it's I think it's a, uh, you know, like 50 or 60% of or whatever it is in the one Shanghai. And so you, you start to realize that, wait, it, how they're doing things over there is not maybe how we would think of it as Americans. Um, whether it's right or wrong is, 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 a, is a side issue, but the ability for the public to put pressure on these companies um, it was there, of course, but did the public know? And so did that allow these companies to kind of play with the fire a little bit more because back home they weren't getting the pressure they might have gotten if the, if the public knew and cared? I don't think, uh, you know, most people in the United States who weren't involved in, in these businesses necessarily would have known much about it. What they started to notice was that uh, the companies, in some cases that they had worked for, that had manufactured products in the United States were either going out of business or moving their productive capacity to China and taking the jobs with them. And so, you know, from certainly from the turn of the century, China's entry into the World Trade Organization, it was this massive effect. Economists talk about the China shock uh, that hit particularly hard at our manufacturing sector. And so I think there were people who felt that uh, in a very personal way, whether they understood exactly what the Chinese were doing is another question. Um, I think as far as, but what were people being told? Well, and what did businesses believe? People were being told, and I think businesses believed, that these were sort of transitory problems, like growing pains, and that China was going to move closer to our practices. And if there are things they were doing that we didn't like, they were not going to do them forever. And they would become more like a normal trading partner. Uh, and so, yes, we have this complaint or that problem, but let's not get too excited about it because eventually they're going to, they're going to have to change in order to be 
to be competitive. So that's what people were told. That's what people in business believed. It turned out not to be true. Okay. So when you said it turns out not to be true, this is where I get hung up. It's possible it turned out not to be true. But it's also possible that if the CCP makes missteps and this large middle class that they have starts to feel pain, prolonged pain, and um, start to reevaluate the questions about or start to question some of the decisions that's been made because the economy struggles for a prolonged period of time, it, it, to me it seems a little bit early to say that the genie wasn't let out of the bottle. I'm not saying it is. I'm just not, I'm not sure – you know, if I was on the CCP side of things, I think I'd be genuinely concerned about what has transpired over the last 20 years. Are you going to bring over these NBA players, which are huge in China? Or are you can say, no, 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 we're done with that. And maybe a large portion of the population will go along with it, but maybe not. Maybe there are people who get frustrated and ask questions. It's sometimes weird things that spark these, <laughs> these things. So are, can we say that they have threaded the needle or is it too early? Look, in one sense, I think it is too early. It's always too early to be sure uh, about big historical processes that you know we we can't predict and no one can fully control. Uh, sometimes people make the argument now. You know, I I argue in the book the strategy of engagement has failed for the reasons that I describe, and some people would say, well, uh, we don't know yet because it may in the long run turn out that perhaps by helping to create a middle class and by helping to expose people to ideas about freedom of speech and democratic government, eventually uh, change will come. What we know is it has not come on the schedule that many people believe that it would. Uh, and to the contrary, in order to prevent it from coming, the Chinese Communist Party has been uh, very um, inventive, uh, very brutal, but also very clever in developing techniques and technologies to keep control of the population. So people may be unhappy about one thing and another, just like a lot of people in China now are unhappy about the so-called zero COVID policy and being locked in their apartments for months at a time and running out of food. They're not happy about it, but they can't do anything about it. They certainly, of course, don't have the option to vote the government out of power uh, they don't have any opportunity to express complaints. If they do it online, they will get a visit from, from the police. Uh, if they go and try to organize a demonstration, they will be promptly arrested and taken away. Uh, so people may be unhappy, but they don't have a way of expressing it. The other thing to say is the, the CCP has bet that by promoting economic growth and improving the well-being of many Chinese people, uh, they would buy their loyalty, essentially. And people would stick with the party, uh, even if there were things they didn't like, because their lives were improving. The, the risk for them is, as growth slows down uh, and as they hit economic obstacles, uh, that that bargain may start to fray. And the part of their support that rests on the ability to generate those uh, good things for people and enable people to feel like their lives will be better next year, their kids' lives will be much better 10 years from now. If people stop believing that, the party is going to have to struggle and try harder to maintain uh, support 
this is aside from control through repression. Sure. One of the things that they've been doing to maintain support is to crank up a kind of nationalism, uh, which attempts to you know, sort of bind people to the party by saying, we have these outside enemies who are trying to hold us down, trying to undermine our system. If you have a complaint, if, if there are problems, it's their fault, not the CCP's fault. And the CCP is protecting you from those foreign enemies. Uh, and that, that we see a good bit of that now, and we're going to see more. I bring this point up quite often, which is if they're talking about Taiwan or they fly a fighter by Taiwan, you can't just take that to mean that they're going to invade Taiwan tomorrow. It's just quite possibly propaganda for back home. And so it, it gets a little frustrating that when we when you hear commentators on China, that every act of China is almost uh, viewed by some in a certain light. It's like, well, we, we all agree that they have a mass propaganda machine. How can you determine what's propaganda and what's actually an action that they're going to take to to be aggressive? And so it's it's um the, the external enemy thing is something that yeah, I've, I've I've I'm a big I'm a big believer in because it seems that they've got a long history of using that, and that's a common with the United States or any government will can use this exterior force to rally um, the troops, if you will, the, the people at home. And so, but going back to what you said before that, which is losing the economic support, to me that's where can the regime, the, the needle that I'm talking about threading, which would be tightened down, and I'm assuming a tightened down would be going back to kind of more how it was, um, and keep the economic growth somewhere similar. Um, so, so the large planning is extremely hard to pull off, and they've made it harder on themselves, it seems, by giving it the prosperity that they gave. And so to kind of pull back, that to me is where... Um, you might see that it's 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 harder to to push it out further because um, people. I don't think they're going to go. Hey, we want to have a Western style democracy, <laughs> but they might say, Hey, we don't want this anymore, and it might just be a one degree one degree um, off from where they're at. Mm-hmm. Well, first on the on the tightening, as I said, I think we're seeing that we've been seeing it for at least the last ten years. We're going to see more of that, uh, and it's become very sophisticated. So the regime is trying to use cutting edge technology to monitor and control their population in a way that no regime has ever been able to do in the past. So uh, you know, facial recognition software and cameras in it on every corner in every major city, uh, monitoring people's, uh, of course, online communications, uh, monitoring their bank accounts, uh, their travel, uh, even keeping databases of their DNA, uh, they are trying ultimately to control uh, or to be able to monitor and therefore to control mm-hmm. all of the activities of, if they can, their entire population. And they're investing huge resources in doing that. And I, no one knows for sure whether they're going to be able to, but they're going further with that. The technology enables them to go further with that than, than any dictatorial regime has ever been able to do in the past. I mentioned nationalism, maybe talk more about that. I have some thoughts on the comment you made about Taiwan, but we're going to see more of that. And they, it's not just an occasional thing. It's a critical piece of the educational program for every Chinese person starting in kindergarten and up through college and graduate school, um, kind of ceaseless 
propaganda, which tells a certain story about the world and about China and about the Chinese Communist Party, uh, that's compelling, I think, to many people because they're no longer talking about, uh, you know, we're going to build communism. They're talking about restoring the greatness of the Chinese nation. And I think that really does resonate with people in a way that these abstract ideological goals no longer do. So tightening up using technology, nationalism, uh, indoctrination, using a kind of sophisticated form of nationalism. And we're not, or most people are not talking about an economy that falls apart or that stops growing, but one that grows more slowly than they've been growing in the past. That was inevitable. All advanced industrial countries pass through a phase where they grow very, very rapidly, and then they start to grow more slowly. But uh, the quality of life for many of their people continues to improve. In the case of China, because the population is going to start shrinking, they don't have to grow quite as fast to continue to improve per capita GDP, you know, average well-being. So, you know, Japan or Korea isn't growing anywhere near as fast as it it did 20 years ago, but the quality of life of many, most people in those countries is improving. The other thing to say about China, though, and we people don't talk about this as much as I think probably they should or don't pay much, as much attention to it. You know, the, the Chinese Communist Party says we have lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. And that is true. But it's also true that a substantial fraction of the population, 600 or 700 million people in the rural areas, continues to live in pretty poor conditions. Uh, and one of the ways that they've you know, driven growth is allowing people to come from the countryside to work in the cities, but that not allowing them to move there with their families and sending them back to the countryside when they're no longer needed. They've got a big rural population that's still quite poor and there are problems with health conditions and so on. That's kind of a hidden underside to the so-called miracle, the Chinese miracle. And they're going to have to cope with that as well. Okay. A couple of things there. First, uh, we interviewed Josh Chin. He has a new book out called uh, Surveillance State Inside China's Quest to Launch a New Era of Social Control. Um, We will link to that in the show notes uh, and also I've mentioned this in the podcast before, but the documentary on HBO Max in the same breath, if you haven't watched it, it's a great look um, at what happened during the early stages of COVID. But hearing how Chinese nationals talk about the threat from outside and being made fun of by the Imperials and what they're willing to do for the state. Now, there are legitimate questions about, you know, are they do they believe that? Are they afraid because they're on camera? But but if nothing else, it's it's a good insight um, for people. So I'll link to all of that in the show notes. You mentioned Taiwan. Uh, let's go back to that. What, what are your thoughts on Taiwan? What, what I get wrong there? Well, it's not that you're wrong, but, uh, and I, I agree, you know, every time, uh, China flies a plane toward Taiwan, it doesn't mean that they're getting ready to attack. And even when they conduct massive military exercises, like they did after speaker Pelosi visited there at the end of the summer, that doesn't mean that war is imminent. However, uh, China has been engaged in a now three decade long buildup of its military capabilities starting in the 1990s. Uh, and the focal point of that, not the sole purpose, but the, fo- the, the mission that's driven a lot of that is the requirement to create options if necessary to use force to compel the unification of 
uh, Taiwan or bring Taiwan back under the control of the mainland. And that's, you know, now involves all kinds of capabilities that target us and target our allies. Uh, but they've spent huge sums of money and exerted enormous efforts to develop those capabilities. And it's not true that, you know, just because you have the capability, you're necessarily going to use it. But whereas 20 or 30 years ago, they could complain about our support for Taiwan or complain about things that were going to happen on Taiwan, but they couldn't seriously threaten to use force to conquer the island. Now they're getting much closer to a position where they have the capability to do that. It doesn't mean automatically they will, or there's some magic tipping point, but the fact that they have the capability creates options for them to resolve this problem once and for all. Uh, it's been a central part of their propaganda, of their nationalist narrative. It's kind of like the the last piece that has to be brought back into the puzzle to make China whole again. Uh, and some people believe that Xi Jinping in particular uh, sees himself as the guy who's going to do that. Mao couldn't do it. Deng Xiaoping didn't do it. The others didn't do it. Xi Jinping himself is going to do it. Now, I don't know that, that it will necessarily turn out to be the case, but he certainly would like to. And the combination of that desire and those capabilities, and one other thing, which is kind of a ticking clock, uh, the CCP talks about the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation and achieving the China dream. And they've set a date of 2049, which will be the 100th anniversary of the country, as the point at which they will have achieved this great rejuvenation. They're a little vague about what that means. Most people, I think, now believe it means making China into the world's leading power. And many people also believe it means certainly by then they will have resolved the Taiwan issue in a way that they believe is 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 right. Um, so there is a bit of a, t a clock ticking in the background. Uh, it's not like this thing is going to go on forever. And China's leaders have said, we can't leave this unresolved forever. Uh, you know, you might say, well, why couldn't they just forget about it? Why, why consider going to war over this and taking all these risks? But they've kind of painted themselves into a corner by making it in, into such a big issue. They can't walk away from it. So that's another reason to be concerned. Okay. So let me push back there slightly. What I, I would, I don't disagree with large swaths of that, of course. Um, but I think precisely because they have pushed themselves into the corner might be the reason they don't move forward. And what I mean by that is a failed conquest of Taiwan for Xi Jinping could be the end of his rule. Um, it could be catastrophic for morale, all the things we talk about. And so, well, you're, you're, you, you could be right, but also I think that Xi Jinping's in there going, you know, if we can't do this, if the U S comes in and takes us out, how do I spin this? So that'd be one thing I'd like to respond to. The second thing is if you think about North Korea, they are constantly, you know, shooting these missiles into the water and they're always doing this stuff and they too have painted themselves into a different corner, but a corner. But if, if the propaganda machine works and it seems to work in these top down heavy regimes, I'm not sure the clock is there the same way we might think of the clock in the West. And so um, there is a, a, a pressure, but is the pressure there in the sense of, could they not generate the propaganda to appease the question 
by 2049 in a way that the populace would take that answer, whatever it might be. So something short of an invasion. You know, we have decided that, you know, I don't know, they're no longer worth our time. They're whatever. I, I don't know. Or we have taken control um, in, in, in another way. So is there not a way that they could re-message this to accomplish their goal? Okay. That's a very good question. And l- let me start with that because there are people who argue, uh, you know, there is some kind of pressure within China that will compel the leadership ultimately to resolve this issue. And you ask, well, what's the source of that pressure? Well, it's a public sentiment. Yes, but that public sentiment is in part ginned up by the regime, although I think it's largely authentic. People do believe this. Uh, I'm not sure if everybody in the country thinks it's that important. I think a lot of people probably don't, but plenty do. But again, public pressure doesn't mean anything near as much in an autocratic regime as it does in a democracy. They can ignore it. They can squelch it. They can spin it other ways. And that's possible. Another version of this argument is, uh, some people say, uh, that a leader who uh, not only uh, tried and failed, and I'll come to that in a minute, but somehow said, oh, never mind, this isn't so important, would then be vulnerable to attack from other people in the elites uh, who would want to remove them and replace them and would use that as a way of of doing so. Um, That's possible too, although Xi Jinping is obviously very much in charge. Um, So it's not inconceivable uh, that they could say, forget about it, but I don't think it's likely. They don't want to. Now, this is aside from the question of whether they want to start a war, they benefit from this atmosphere of crisis and tension, and they can turn the heat up and turn the heat down. It's not like people on Taiwan have been doing dramatic things to make this more of a problem. To the contrary, they've been avoiding doing those things in recent years. It's entirely the PRC that generates these crises, uh, and it can choose not to do that too. Now, you made the point about failed conquest. Uh And I agree. And I think that's actually one of the reasons why um, this is a low probability event, although I think the probability is increasing for reasons that I suggested a a few minutes ago. Um, However, even though there are risks, undeniable risks, we know, and we've had a very recent uh, illustration of this, that leaders can miscalculate and can come to believe that the risks of doing something are much less than they turn out to be, uh, whether because they believe their own propaganda or their generals lie to them or whatever it is. Vladimir Putin thought he could conquer Ukraine in a week, and it didn't work out that way. I don't think Xi Jinping is likely to make quite the same miscalculation, but he could, and leaders do. Dictators may more than others, but sometimes democracies miscalculate too. So even if it's risky, objectively, and even if it turned out that it failed, that's not necessarily how it's going to be perceived by decision makers at the moment that they make a decision. I guess the last thing to say, which counters uh, this, or which makes you think that we ought to be worried, even if the costs stay high, um, the leadership, I think, in China doesn't just look at sort of bombs and bullets. They're not just looking at the military side of this. They're also assessing different factors, political and economic factors. And one thing I think they're not convinced of is just how solid 
the support for Taiwan would be. Uh, I suspect they believe that we would become involved. They probably, if they had any doubts, they probably have fewer doubts now because the president has pretty much said that we would. But do they really believe that our allies would would help us out? Do they believe our allies would join in imposing sanctions on them? Maybe they think this is something they can do and get away with because in the end, they don't believe that we will have the support we need, or maybe they don't think we'll have the stomach for fighting a war over this distant piece of territory. Uh, And look, there are people in uh, public life in this country who have made the argument, and I think we're going to hear more of this, that we shouldn't be willing to to go to war over this uh, or that the risks aren't worth it to us. We see more people now saying we shouldn't be supporting Ukraine as much as we are. I happen to think that's wrong. But um, the Chinese leaders are constantly watching for indications of wavering will. And here again, they may miscalculate, but once they've made that decision, it's kind of too late. It's uh, it's going to be very damaging and destructive. So we have to do everything we can to deter them, which means convincing them that they can't achieve their objectives by using force. That's partly a matter of strengthening our military, strengthening Taiwan, working with our allies, partly a matter of convincing them that we would respond, partly a matter of convincing them that we would use costly economic measures to punish them if they did this. We have to work on all aspects of this because I do think the the, the danger is growing. Okay. You mentioned that you think in the West or in the U.S. at least that you're going to hear a more growing sentiment that we shouldn't back Taiwan. Why should we back Taiwan? A couple of reasons. One, um, I think there is a moral reason. It's not sufficient in and of itself, but Taiwan has transformed itself into a very prosperous and successful and stable liberal democracy since the 1990s. And that was something we wanted and something we supported. Uh, And I would think that it would be, uh, we would, um, we would not be living up to our highest ideals if we turned our back on these people whom we've helped and supported far more than we did the people of Ukraine uh, when the chips were down and they faced a threat. But it goes beyond that. I think uh, if China were to conquer Taiwan, it would be in a much better position to uh, control the oceans and the sea lanes out into the Western Pacific, which would make it harder for us to operate our military forces and support our allies, particularly in Northeast Asia, uh, Korea and Japan, but also Australia, the Philippines. It would give them a kind of a chokehold on the sea lines of communication that go to Japan and Korea, which import all of their energy, most of it coming from the Persian Gulf through uh, uh the Straits of Malacca and through uh, the narrow waters around Malaysia and Indonesia. Uh, so it give them uh, power over our friends and, and our allies. Um, and it would put them in a better position, I think, to push us back and perhaps push us out of this part of the world that happens to be economically the most important and dynamic region of, of the world. So it would leave China stronger uh, and leave us weaker and leave our allies exposed uh, and sacrifice the people of Taiwan. So I think those are all good reasons to to support them. 
Okay, um, one more thing on this kind of general thought. Noam Chomsky said that, in his opinion, a lot of this rhetoric uh, around Taiwan is U.S. British propaganda, that we are the imperialists, we are the ones who do the conquering, we are the ones that do the invading. Um, and if you look at what China's done on the margin, it's relatively benign compared to what the U.S. and Britain has done. And so if I understand his argument. I think his argument is more that we in the West hold these positions about China and Taiwan because of how we have handled things and how we view things. And we are more projecting on them than, than is actually reality, than, than is actually the reality there. Well, uh, in, in saying that Chomsky is repeating a line from CCP propaganda, which is China is an inherently peaceful country and has never invaded and conquered and gone to war with anybody, which is nonsense. If you look back at, China's history. It's been involved in wars and it's invaded its neighbors over a period of, you know, hundreds, uh, even thousands of years. Uh, It's been weaker recently and therefore has not engaged in that kind of activity. Although the CCP did, when when the PRC was created uh, in 1949, they went back and reconquered Tibet and Xinjiang which had been controlled by the last of the Chinese uh, dynasties, but had slipped out of their control. So the notion that they're inherently peaceful and, and, you know, we're the warmongers uh, just doesn't stand up, I think, to, to close scrutiny. Okay. I want to go back to something earlier you said, um, anytime you talk about China, the stealing of the IP comes up, uh, intellectual theft. Um, and, when did the U.S., the West, however you want to phrase it, realize that perhaps, because the U.S. Engages, engages in espionage as well, but when did the U.S. realize that perhaps the rules of this level of espionage was going to be a little bit different? It's only relatively recently. Um, this was something that was not really talked about uh, until into the uh, the 2010s. Um, in 2012, there was a report by a, an independent uh, group, the National Bureau of Asian Research. And there was a, a commission on intellectual property theft that was the first attempt to estimate the cost of the ongoing theft of intellectual property. Um, and since then, there's been much more focus and attention on it. But it was it was going on. It had been going on for 20 years at least. The thing is, in the 90s and maybe into the early 2000s, it was it seemed relatively trivial, you know, the um, knockoff CDs or fake Timex or, or Rolex watches, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and people thought, well, that doesn't really matter that much. But as time has gone on, it's been uh, the the activity has been directed at trying to steal cutting edge technology so as to allow China to jump ahead in the design and production of high-end semiconductors or in the development and exploitation of artificial intelligence or in the construction of uh, new types of weapons like autonomous vehicles and hypersonic missiles. Um, So they're not, they've been, they're stealing stuff now, which is going to enhance their capabilities broadly in technology, make them, even more of a challenge in the military, in the economic domain and more of a challenge in the military domain. Um, so it's been, it was going on. People were aware of it. They tended to discount it. Now we're starting to take it seriously, but again, it's, it's kind of late in the day. 
So how do we separate when China does something, steals IP, versus when the U.S. steals IP? Who has the moral high ground there? Well, first of all, we we don't steal IP uh, for commercial purposes. The U.S. intelligence community doesn't engage in that kind of activity. We steal all kinds of things. Uh, for what it tells us about the capabilities and, and intentions of hostile countries, and occasionally our, our friends. Um, but the CIA doesn't go into the computers of a Chinese company, suck out the design for the next generation semiconductor or whatever it is, and then hand that over to an American company. Uh, we have a totally different idea about the proper relationship between uh, the government and and the economy. I mean, for one thing, if you stop to think about it, if they did steal that information, would they give it to Intel? Would they give it to IBM? Would they give it to Apple? Who gets it? You know, so we don't, we haven't done that kind of thing. China does it on a massive, massive scale. And it's a combination of government and pri- private and quasi-private actors uh, who are engaged in it. So uh, we know that uh, the Chinese intelligence agencies have uh, employed people directly and indirectly, basically hackers, people who are involved in breaking into computer systems around the world to steal all kinds of information. Uh, a, lo- a lot of it is state-sponsored and funded, but the results then are used by Chinese companies, some of which are state-owned, but some of which are nominally private. Uh, so, and that's gone on, as I say, for decades, and but it's become more and more focused and intense. So we don't do the same thing. Uh, now people say, might also say, well, but we did it in the 19th century. We stole a lot of intellectual property when we were trying to catch up and overtake Britain. And mm-hmm. there is truth in that. Again, it wasn't a government sponsored activity. Um, the problem oh, is not just... The problem is not just what they're doing, uh, but what they're doing with what they're stealing. And Mm. the reason that's a problem is because of the character of the CCP regime. If it was Japan, and Japan was accused of some of this stuff too, not nearly on the same scale, that would be an annoyance. That would possibly create some commercial problems for our our industries, but it wouldn't create a threat to our national security and even our survival. Whereas when China does it, it does present that kind of a threat because of the ambitions of the CCP regime. Okay, so I would say a couple of things there, just to clarify. You know, the U.S., obviously, if China, Russia, whomever, has superior weapons technology, we would steal that and give it to some defense contractor. I would be, I can't imagine they wouldn't do that. It might not be public knowledge, but it would be hard to imagine our CIA would go, oh, hey, they've got better weapons we're not going to steal the tech. Now, it might not be commercial IP because of how that works. And, but the other thing I would say is the ag tech. When you look at the ag tech, I, I, so I'm not trying to make a, it's a moral okay to steal, but they can't feed their own people. And so stealing ag tech, would the U.S., if the U.S. was in a severe famine and Russia had some super hyper wheat they could grow, would we steal that to feed our own people? I suspect we would. And so... To me, there, there's a wide spectrum of the IP theft. Uh, I'm not trying to condone what China does, but I'm, I'm also not sure that pushing to the corner, the U.S. wouldn't deploy some similar tactics or hasn't done similar things uh, in those two areas. Well, 
Okay, uh, just a general comment first, and that is, again, the volume of this activity is just unlike anything that's been seen in history. It's orders of magnitude larger, yeah. Yeah, and I I forget who it was. I think it was the former director of of the National Security Agency said uh, China's been engaged in a theft of intellectual property that is unprecedented in in human history, you know, the volume and the value of what they've been stealing. So it's on a massive scale. It's not similar to what any other country is doing or has done. On the defense stuff, yeah, I'm sure uh, our intelligence agencies are interested in gaining information about the technical characteristics of the weapon systems of our enemies. That's usually for purposes of developing counters to it. So yeah, that information would find its way into the hands of U.S. defense contractors who could tweak the designs of cruise missiles to make sure that they were invisible to uh, radar, that kind of thing. So I'm not saying there's there's nothing, that, there's no connection. But sure. again, nothing like what China is doing, uh, where the purpose would be to promote the fortunes of an American company in competition with, with a Chinese or other foreign competitor. The agriculture technology, I mean, it's a huge industry, obviously, in the United States. Uh, and if maybe we, well, if China steals te- the technology that allows them to better feed their own people, that probably means they're taking business away from American companies that are exporting uh, huge quantities of soybeans to them. So there's a there's a commercial cost. By the way, although I don't think this is going to happen because I think they're Dependence is is still very great uh, on us and is growing uh, for uh, in the agriculture domain. But if they became less dependent on us as they would like to be in agriculture as in technology, that would mean that we would have less leverage over them and we would not have a weapon that we could conceivably use if we were in a confrontation or if we were in a conflict with them. So for that think, purpose, we'd rather have them more dependent on us than less. Yeah, I think that often gets missed is during 2020 when Trump was accusing uh, of the lap leak theory. Um, you know, he's like, hey, it's, it's manufactured to come out of Wuhan. Uh, the Australians were like, ah, you know, maybe there's something. But yeah, we, we'd just like to see an investigation kind of, you know, we'd just like to see what's going on. They cut them off. They bought more from us. <laughs> you know, And so right, we, right. I, I do think in the West, we kind of when you talk about this, this hyperbole around China, it's like, well, yeah, there, there, there are these other things that they are dependent on us. That they can't get away from us. But I'm, um, I'll let you respond if you'd like. And then I know we're up. Oh, it's the clock. I don't want to uh, take too much more of your time. Well, just on, on Australia, that's an interesting example of the way in which China is increasingly using economic leverage mm-hmm. to pressure, to punish, to try to influence the policies of major com- uh, countries and countries that are allied to the United States. Right. Uh, they haven't done that to us yet, but we should try not to be in a position where they could do that. And this is why there's such concern about supply chains. Uh, we saw that mm-hmm. during the pandemic. You know, Lo and behold, we can't manufacture enough masks or personal protective equipment or pumps for uh, uh, mechanical breathing devices. Um, and we have to get that stuff from China or uh, the chemicals that are the precursor to medications or the medications themselves. We've allowed a, a lot of that stuff to migrate out of the United States and 
for it to be done in places where it was relatively less expensive, often in China, without taking account of the fact that by doing this, we were putting our health or the health of our people potentially in the hands of a regime that's fundamentally hostile to us. And this is not just imaginary. The, the CCP regime did sort of hint at and threaten uh, that they would they might cut this stuff off if we were if we did things they didn't want to do didn't want us to do so um, the economic relationship that has developed over the last several decades among other things has created vulnerabilities uh, which we now have to address and they're serious vulnerabilities that would emerge if we were involved in a conflict with with China we would find very quickly that we couldn't manufacture a whole variety of things uh, that we actually need to keep our economy running, to keep our people healthy, uh, to uh, rearm and refit our military in the event of a conflict. We can't, we are not safe to the extent that we've allowed ourselves to become so dependent on China. And that's something that, you know, it, it seemed fine and would be fine if you could be sure that we would always be at peace with them. We would be able to be confident of that if they were a liberal democracy that shared our values and had interests that genuinely converged with ours. What we've realized is we can't rely on that. And now we have to start unwinding some of these interdependencies uh, in order to uh, preserve our own security. And it's going to be costly. Okay. As we mentioned at the start, the book is called Getting China Wrong. We're going to link to it in the show notes. Obviously, you've given us a, a lot of things where I'm wrong, at least. And so the listeners going to get a taste of that. Go read the book. Uh, you have other books on China as well. Um, is there anywhere else you want us to sit and listeners to uh, besides the book? Uh, no, that's where, that's where I'd start. I'd be delighted if uh, people took the time to read it. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thanks for listening today. Really, really appreciate it. If you could, drop a five-star review wherever you may be. We keep getting on great guests, and that's because you keep supporting that show. If you want to know more, go to warroommedia.com. Thanks for listening today. Really, really appreciate it. If you could, drop a five-star review wherever you may be. We keep getting on great guests, and that's because you keep supporting that show. If you want to know more, go to warroommedia.com.